listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Lord, our hearts long to see every tribe and people and nation and language before your throne, praising that salvation belongs to our God. Meet us in this place, show us your heart, guide our words, speak to us now. In your name I pray, amen. amen. What does it mean to be a multicultural, multi-generational church? It means we're practicing for heaven because that's what heaven's gonna look like. When people of every tribe and tongue Every nation and people gather together to praise God in the way that only they can because that's the way that God has made them to praise. And so for us, as we've been going through this series on who we are as a church, who we strive to be, who we're growing into becoming, this is the next one, is this idea of being multicultural and multigenerational. The first question that we have to look at and what that means is, what does it mean to be multicultural, okay? Um, this is, can be a hard, harder question for some people than for others because for some of us, we're a little bit like fish. You ever seen a fish in a stream or in a fishbowl? They're happily swimming. They don't know that they're in water until they're out of it. And then what happens? <laughs> right? All of a sudden, they learn really fast that they've been swimming in water their whole lives. And they're not in it anymore, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. Okay? And for some of us, we've been in the same water and the, maybe the same pond, the same river, the same ocean for a very long time, and we haven't necessarily experienced what it means to be like this. <laughs> for some of us, We've spent a lot of time hopping from pond to pond, and we know really well how hard it can be to gasp for air when you're all of a sudden in a new, a new stream or new pond of water. And that's what culture is. Culture is the water that we find ourselves in. If you woke up this morning and you had breakfast, you said good morning to someone, and you put on clothes, you participated in culture because you grew up in a framework that taught you when to wake up, what kind of clothes to wear, what you were going to do and how to appropriately greet people, what language to speak, how to organize your day, what kind of food is edible and not edible. There's a lot more things in this world that are edible than I guarantee you than you eat, okay? But you grew up in a framework that teaches you all of these things so you don't have to think about it every day. If you had to think about it every day, it would take the entire morning just to figure out what to eat for breakfast because you wouldn't know. Oh, can I eat the carpet? I don't know. Do I eat the bugs? I don't know. What do I eat? Okay, your culture teaches you these things so that when you wake up, you don't have to stop and think about it. You just do it. I, uh, one of my coworkers was a missionary in Cambodia for a long time, and I loved how she explained it. When she has new people coming over to move to Cambodia, she tells them all that everybody's mother is right. 
Meaning, they're going to meet people who do things a completely different way, and they learned it from their mom, and their mom is right. So it's going to feel right to them, as right as it feels to you. And learning how to deal with that tension of, we, I know this is the right way to do things, and they're not doing it that way, and it doesn't make sense in my head. Okay? In a multicultural church, we have to know how to navigate the complicated world between culture. And the first step is knowing what is culture. I'm going to give us an oversimplified definition, which is the way of life of a group of people. Okay? The way of life of a group of people. Now, we spend our entire lives learning it, participating in it, embodying it. It teaches us how to walk, how to talk, how to move, how to breathe. Everything that we do occurs in the water of the environment in which we have been grown. Okay? It's the, the shared way of life that you grew up with in your family of origin, your neighborhood of origin, the people that you grew up with, the places that you've been, and you're going to be living in it for the rest of your life. Now, it's going to be constantly changing as the people that leave footprints in our lives come and go as we change neighborhoods and change jobs and change schools, but it's still with us, and we are always a work in process. We are always a jar of clay being shaped to look a little bit different by the, the hands that are involved in shaping us and our viewpoint of the world. I sometimes like to explain it as it's our default programming. You know how with a computer you have a default programming that you just turn it on and it's there until you change it? That's a shortcut. It gives us a way so we don't have to think about, okay, where do I have a mouse? What's the color? What's the font? How does this operating system work? You just have it until you change it, okay? Culture is our default programming. And it's our autopilot. It's our map that we use to see the world. And this is also why I would consider being multi-generational the same as being multicultural. Because when you grow up in a particular worldview, you carry that worldview with you for the rest of your life. My grandmother is going to talk about growing up in the Depression. That's different culture than what I grew up in. Okay? She carries that experience with her. Okay? When Terry is in our grow group and telling us stories about growing up in Redlands, he's sharing a different cultural perspective than the one that the rest of us in the group have grown up with. And when my children are talking about what they learned at school, they are growing up in a different time and era with different influences than I had growing up. And so I would argue that being multi-generational is pretty much the same thing as being multicultural. Now, the thing with culture is most of us are really good with the visible parts of culture. We understand that we speak different languages and eat different foods and wear different clothes. But the thing with culture is most of it's not on the surface. Most of us, most of it is like an iceberg deep underneath, influencing us in unconscious ways that we don't even know, okay? When we first go to a new place, we're gonna see the things that are obvious. We're gonna see the tip of the iceberg. But it's the quiet things underneath that are gonna take us the rest of our lives to figure out. Like, how we deal with time. Anybody ever been into a uh, people-centered time culture where church doesn't start till everyone's there? Versus 
church starting at a particular time, or an indirect communication culture where you never actually tell somebody, no, I'm not coming. You just say, oh, I'm coming, and then never show up because it would lose face and dishonor them to tell them no. Can be in a place for 20 years and miss some of these subtle nuances and symbolisms and interconnections between different parts of culture goes into things like leadership roles and decision-making. Who makes the decisions and where? What is the context? How do we communicate it? How are gender roles and family roles and church roles all interconnected to our political system and our monetary system and our holidays that we celebrate because it is all interconnected? Now, that's what culture is. But we have to look at, for being a multicultural church, we gotta look at it from God's perspective, which means everybody has culture, that means God has a purpose in it. So what's God's purpose? Why did God make culture? It's his idea, right? Now some people will try to be very spiritual and say, oh, I don't have culture, I'm a Christian. We'll say, well, did you read your Bible? In what language? Did you take communion? And what food did you eat? Okay, congratulations. You just used culture to correspond, to understand, to come into the presence of God because there's no other way for you to do it. How are you gonna communicate without a means of communication? Okay, we all have culture. And if we don't think we do, it just means you're still a fish in a stream and you haven't stopped to analyze what the water looks like. Now, why did God create culture? First reason is to fill the earth, to fill it. God made the entire earth. And in Genesis 1, uh, 27 through 28, the Bible tells us that so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, what we see, God made people, but he gave them some commands. One of the commands, increase in number. The other command, fill the earth. How many different climate zones are in the earth? Quite a few, right? Can you grow pineapples in the Arctic? Can you hunt penguins on the equator? Our climate zones influence how we live our life. In order to fill the earth, we have to have the biological and cultural and social capacity to fill it, which means we have to be able to adapt. Our God is an intensely creative God. His heart delights in these crazy, complicated biological uh, ecosystems around the world. Do you know how many different types of stingrays there are? There are over 600 types of stingrays. He couldn't just make one. He had to make 600. 
there's over 200 types of squirrels. Our God loves to be creative. He's not satisfied with just one type of squirrel, okay? And it's the same with people. He's not satisfied with one type of person. He wanted us to fill the entire earth. And in order to do that, we had to be able to adapt. Now, he gives us a certain amount of biological capacity to adapt, which is a beautiful blessing. Because for most of our lives, like long time, way back, you know, past generations when we didn't have access to things like airplanes and vitamin D fortified milk, having the ability to adapt to our biological environment helped us survive. Because if you drop me in Uganda, I am going to get skin cancer and die without having sunscreen. And if you drop my wonderful husband in the middle of Sweden, he is going to have a vitamin D deficiency and he is going to also get sick, okay? We have the beautiful capacity to adapt to our environment in a context where we can't pick up and move immediately to another place to find what we need. But we also have the social and cultural capacity to adapt. Did you know that in the Arctic, you can hunt narwhals to get vitamin C? You can't grow plants, and so in order to prevent scurvy, you eat you hunt narwhal. It's anthropologist named Wade Davis says that the Inuit don't survive the cold, they take advantage of the cold. They use it to survive and to thrive in an area that most people would run away from. When we move to the desert, we learn how to interact with camels, how to look at the stars to find where the watering holes are. We remember in our head maps of where the different oases are so we know how to survive in that context. And the beautiful thing about human beings, unlike, I mean, animals are incredible. Their capacity to adapt and to change is amazing, but it takes a really long time for an animal to adapt to a changing climate. If I take a Maasai kid from the middle of Kenya and I drop him in Canada, he can survive pretty well. He can adapt, he can grow, he can learn the language, he can adjust, he can get a really warm jacket. And we have airplanes and vitamin D fortified milk. We're doing good, okay? And when I go to Uganda, I have sunscreen now. I'll survive. Because human beings created the capacity to move, to migrate, to fill the earth. Now, the, the command to fill the earth is one that God repeats multiple times. After the flood, he tells Noah, Go fill the earth. Tower of Babel, what happens? People refused. They said, we want to stay in one place. We want to be like God. We just, we don't want to, we don't want to go. We like being all together. So what did God do? He gave them languages and said, now you can't talk to each other. You can't get along. Now obey me, darn it, and fill the earth. <laughs> and so they did. And then what do we have happen? Our God, in his amazing, beautiful heart, one of the first things he does when he pours out the Holy Spirit is pours out speaking different languages and reverses the Tower of Babel. They say, we are hearing God in our own language. We see it from Genesis to Revelation. God has a heart for the entire world because we all reflect his glory. That is our next point besides God 
God made culture to fill the earth and he made culture to reflect his image and his glory. Human beings are sometimes much too easily satisfied with ourselves. We are very content to have God save me and my people. And God says, that is not enough for me. I want everybody to the ends of the earth. And our God is so big. He is big enough to be God of the Berbers. He is big enough to be God of the Tajiks. He fills the answers and the deep needs of the human hearts of the Mayans, the Peruvians, the Los Angelinos, all of us. <laughs> He's big enough. But each of us reflect God in our own unique, beautiful way. It's kind of like a diamond. A diamond reflects light. That's what makes it look cool, right? But if the diamond is just one level, how much light is it going to reflect, right? Pretty much like one surface, kind of like a piece of glass almost, but well, you gotta cut it in like a bunch of little pieces so that each angle and beveled edge reflects the light in different ways. It's all the same light, but we're reflecting it in the way that only we can. And that's what the expressions, the manifestations, the embodiment of human beings around the earth do in all times and places is we reflect the glory and image and beauty of God in ways that only we can in our particular slice of earth, in our particular era of world history. And that is to God's glory. He sees it, he thinks it's beautiful, and it pleases him. And we are missing something in the kingdom of God if we don't have everyone's unique voice in that, cho that choir. What did Jesus do when he came? The incarnation, that beautiful mystery, he took on flesh. He pitched his tent and dwelt among us, is what the word literally translates to. He was born at a particular time, in a particular era. He learned a particular language. He was a carpenter's son. He was born and raised in a particular era. As one of his followers, Nathaniel said, what good comes from Nazareth? He grew up with stereotypes. He grew up knowing about different groups, the Romans, the Samaritans, the different sects of Jews. He had a worldview. He had a belief system. Jesus had a culture. When God became man, he took on culture. And he transformed it by showing us what an unbroken, whole, sinless expression of culture could look like. And that is the same thing that he does in every culture. He wants to incarnate and take on the flesh and pitch his tent and dwell among every people group so they can see this is what your group of people look like if you were unbroken, if you were unscarred by the fall. Because it's not your culture that's the bad thing. It's how Satan has twisted it and how sin has gotten into it that has made it bad. Now, Genesis to Revelations. I could keep going with verses on this. However, the point is, God loves culture. He delights in it. He wants to heal it. He wants to change it. He wants to see it made whole. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After I looked, and there before me there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. 
Look at that. We bring parts of our culture with us into heaven. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands as they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Beginning to the end, God created us to reflect him in unique ways. And part of our fulfilling of his heart and his purpose is to do it in the way that only our, we can, in our usness, in our groupness, in our unique reflection that we have been born and raised and grown into. Now, how do we live as a multicultural, multi-generational church? First off, it is not easy. (laughs) It is against our natural intuition, which is to stick with people we are comfortable with and to be with people who are like us. It's a heck of a lot easier because they don't challenge my paradigm for the world. Uh, it's, It's that we don't like to be the fish out of water, right? That's uncomfortable. It's... I have a way of thinking, and I don't like to be told that there might be another way, okay? I know my way of cooking potatoes. How dare you tell me there's another way to cook those potatoes, right? Now, does it work to cook potatoes in a lot of different ways? Heck yes, but if I grow up knowing there's one way, it is severely uncomfortable to be told there's another way, okay? Especially sometimes the more we grow and experience in life, the less flexible we can be. Because as children, we're these incredible sponges who soak up everything, what is spoken or unspoken, to develop an, our idea of how the world works. And once we're old, we're so tired doing everything else that we don't want to have to stop and think about what is good and what's bad. What's, you know, we don't want to have to rethink our defaults because it's a lot of work. Anyone who has ever switched cultures and gone through culture shock, you know it's exhausting because you basically become like a child again, rethinking how to do everything. And it takes a stinking long time. (laughs) Now, in most places, we don't naturally seek out people who are different than us. Now, some places, you live next door to them, you're forced to interact, school settings, work settings, you have opportunities where you're kind of thrown in the deep end and you have to sink or swim and learn how to relate with people who are different. But sometimes we prefer to hide or stay with people who are like us or be with, surround ourselves with people who are much more similar because, let's be honest, there's a lot less conflicts, right? There's a lot less for us to disagree about. And that's the thing is, To be a multicultural, multi-generational church takes a manifestation of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that makes it possible. I've watched a lot of talks about how to, you know, bring unity across very deep cultural divides outside of the church, and there's no glue or anything that will do it as well as the Holy Spirit. Because look at Pentecost. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit did. And then every time the church crosses cultural boundaries. It takes a dramatic work of the Holy Spirit to make it happen. If you look at almost every great revival that's happened through history, it usually involves crossing a cultural boundary and kicking people's butts to get them to move outside of their comfort zone into a different culture where God says, 
you don't think you want them in heaven, but I want them in heaven. Go. <laughs> I don't care what I have to do. I want to save all people. Now, there was a lot of verses about how we do this, but I want to look at this one. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, uh, 12 through 26. It says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Paul is talking to a multicultural church. They have Jews and Gentiles, two distinct cultural groups that did not like each other. Slave and free, two different class groupings, which the differences between class are often just as cross-cultural as between different cultural groupings. And he's saying, we have something to tie us together, and it is the Holy Spirit. Now, in talking about this, it's important to recognize two things. First off, unity. We are all the same. We are all in the image of God. We all have the same spirit. But also, diversity. We are not all the same. We are all different, unique, distinct. And those are both simultaneously true at the same time. It's called a paradox. We are the same and we are different. We have unity in our diversity. Now, different eras in church history, we like to emphasize one part over the other because one of Satan's favorite strategies is to get us to believe and live out half-truths. If he can make us to forget half of a paradox, then he can make us do terrible, terrible things to each other and believing that we're doing what he's called us to do. Unity, we are all the same. 
We are all in the image of God. But that doesn't mean that we all reflect him in the exact same way. Diversity. We are all unique, distinct, and gifted. In my marriage, we have a man and a woman. We are unique, and we are the same. Both at the same time in that mystery that is one flesh. I am not going to become my husband. My husband is not going to become me, but we are still one. And we live that out in distinct, beautiful, mysterious oneness. We have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct parts, one God. It doesn't make any sense, and that's why it's a mystery, and that's why it's beautiful. And that's what we have in his church. We have more people groups and languages and cultures represented that can ever be counted. And yet we have the same spirit, the same savior, the same God, and we are all made in his image in the same way. And both are true at the same time. And we have to remember both because on one hand, if we say we're all the same, sometimes that can make us buy into this idea of being colorblind, meaning I don't see differences well, then you're going to miss seeing people's beauty and richness and what they contribute. Mm -hmm. On the other side, we say, no, we are so different that we can't possibly interact. You stay in your corner, I'll stay in mine. We both love Jesus, but we don't like each other. That also doesn't make the church reflect God's heart in the way that he desires because we need each other. As this verse in Corinthians is telling us, We need the hands, we need the feet, we need the nose, we need the ears. We need all the parts to be a complete global body of Christ. Each era, each place, each time shows us what God's heart looks like in a different way and is our gift to each other. We learn from each other, we grow with each other. I love, I'm a cultural anthropologist, I love culture. But one of the things I love the most is finding out my blind spots and where I am totally wrong, okay? Because there's a lot. Anyone who grows up in a cultural perspective, I guarantee you, you have blind spots. Things you don't even realize, you don't even know what questions to ask. And one of the things I love walking in this space in between cultures is when I have people speaking truth to me and challenging my paradigms and making me feel like a fish out of water. Because then I have the chance to grow and deepen and see God and see humanity and this experience of humanness in a completely new way. And you know, when a church comes together that is multicultural and multi-generational and has a unity that defies understanding, the rest of the world takes notice because that is a supernatural act of God. When the Holy Spirit decided to show up in Cornelius' life in the early church in the book of Acts 10 through 11, the rest of the church said, what? The Gentiles can get the Holy Spirit too? It's like... They have the Holy Spirit, what are we gonna say? The Holy Spirit shows up and people say, what is going on? That is against what we think. It's against what's normal. It's against the way that our sinful patterns of being teach us to think and live. Now, practical tips. What, how do we do this, okay? First off, we're always still learning, okay? We have to live as humble learners to God and others. This means in humility recognize that you are weird 
and everybody else is normal. That's a, well, that was the theme of one of the uh, Anthropological Association meetings a couple years ago. <laughs> we grow up naturally thinking that we're normal and everybody else is weird. We have a fancy name for that called ethnocentrism, okay? But humility means learning that I am weird, and if you look at people's way they live and way they do their thing, in their perspective, it makes sense. They are also in the image of God. They do things that seem totally don't make any sense, but in that worldview, if I enter into it, I can understand why. Doesn't mean I have to agree with it. One of my professors used to say, you don't have to like fish to cook it, okay? To understand, I need to enter into other worldviews. I don't have to agree, but I have to understand it from their perspective and not mine. Because I don't know what kinds of pineapples they're trying to grow. I don't know the flavor of their water. I need to know that so I can understand why they do what they do. And the same thing that other people are gonna look at me and go, I don't understand you. And I say, well, let me explain. This is why I do what I do. This is how it makes sense. And that humble listening part is being willing to hear that, dude, you're wrong. I love it when people tell me that I'm wrong. Now, sometimes I love it more than others. Just be honest. There are some days I don't like being told it, but eventually, it helps grow me. I have the chance to struggle. I have the chance to find where do I contradict because every culture contradicts itself. Every culture has lies that we believe, blind spots that we hold, and things that need to be forgiven and things that need to be redeemed. Every single culture that has ever existed and will ever exist, they are all broken. And we all need each other to learn and other people groups teach me how to see things from a different perspective, and I need that. And sometimes I need to bring things before God and be like, God, how do you need to change my worldview? What am I not even seeing? So, live as humble listeners to God and others. As James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Hear what people have to say. Hear their, hear their life stories, their experiences. What have they seen? Where have they been? What can they teach you? Okay, we can all learn from other people regardless of the packaging we find them in. Young, old, rich, poor, language that they speak, place they grow up in. God can speak truth through anyone. My five-year-old sometimes teaches me profound life experiences and truths that I'm not necessarily ready for, right? God has used pagan kings to teach his people things. He even used a donkey to talk to Balaam, right? God is creative. He'll use whatever method he wants to to teach people things. And if we're humble and we're listening, God can teach us truths through people we wouldn't necessarily expect. Next thing is leaning into and learning from discomfort. It is hard work to deal with culture shock and deal with other cultures. It is exhausting. When you run into these areas that rub, instead of running away, and saying, this is hard, I don't want to deal with it, dive into it and say, what is my invitation to learn and to grow? Is there something that God wants to challenge me in in my own life? Is there something that I need to look into? It's uncomfortable, but it is an invitation to growth. I remember long conversations with my husband when we first met about the purpose of marriage. We, he said it was for growing the community and having children. I said, no, it's for 
self-fulfillment and companionship. We had a very extensive debate, and at the end of the day, we were both very uncomfortable, and we had to both go back and look up every single verse in the Bible about marriage and really spend some time in prayer going, what is my culture, what is my culture growing up told me versus what does the Bible tell me and where am I wrong? And I found out I had a lot of things that I was wrong about because it was both true, okay? Yeah, we are, it was not good for man to be alone, but we are also told to fill the earth and to multiply. They were both true. And it was like I had this uncomfortable sec, um, intersection between my faith and the culture that I'd grown up with, the worldview that I'd grown up in, where I was like, okay, I need to have a lot of me redeemed and analyzed. And there's been some cross-cultural interactions where I go back and I go, I don't agree with this, but I still need to go, why? Okay, what is it that I don't agree with? What is it that God says about it? What are the things that God has to transform in my own life? Okay? And it can take a very long time and be uncomfortable. Next is develop an attitude of honor. We need everyone. We need to value everyone, as that verse in Corinthians was telling us. If one part suffers, we all suffer. If one part is honored, we are all honored. We all are on a journey. We all have something to bring to the table, and we all have something we can learn from each other. And we need to cultivate, cultivate that idea of honoring people for what they bring and the way that God wants to use them and what they can teach us about what it means to be human and their, their particular slice of life. And all of us are in different stages of the journey, and that's good. Now, some of us, we've been swimming in the current. We don't even know we're in the water. I would encourage you to ask God questions. Ask where he wants you to lean in, where he wants you to feel a little more uncomfortable. What are the things that he wants you to recognize about the particular viewpoint and slice of life that you've been born and raised in? What are the th ways that he wants to grow you? Some of you in here, you know too well the flavor of your water and you feel like you've been swimming upstream a long, long time and you're exhausted of knowing that your normal isn't anybody else's normal and trying to just stay afloat and keep swimming when you are constantly against the, against the current can just feel exhausting. Know that Jesus sees that. He made you who you are. He will use you as you are, and you are indispensable to the body of Christ. Each and every one of us here God desires to make part of his multicultural and multi-generational church. We need to have his graciousness, his honor, his heart, and his humility. Jesus became like a baby, and we too have to become like babies. Like we have to be able to go back and relearn how to do everything at our master's feet as he teaches us. This is how we live a Christ-centered life in our particular culture and time and place. And if we do that, we are going to have a taste of heaven and see more of the heart of God. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.